had no choice but to survive. I had no choice but to show up. I had no choice for myself because I don't sit in things, but more importantly, because I had to live to tell the story so I could serve others. And so while it was heart-wrenching and difficult to go through these these traumatic moments, and I'm very, very excited to just be free of a lot of it, and a lot of it is just being cleared and being cleared, I don't regret it because it has given me such a sense of humility and such a sense of of understanding that I never had before. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. And if you're a frequent listener, really appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're new, welcome. Each week, we are talking to one woman. We're going deep into her story. These are women across all industries who are playing at the top of their game. And we're looking beyond the resume. We're looking at the decisions along the way, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that have shaped their careers and their lives, the tough choices that, you know what, aren't always obvious. Sometimes you have two options in life and they may both look great or they might both look bad. And these women have been there. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. Our guest today says that when she was 25 years old, she was addicted to drugs, alcohol, partying, work, and food. She hit rock bottom. And now today, a handful of years later, she is a New York Times bestselling author. She's been featured on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday as a next generation thought leader. And the New York Times called her a new role model. She co-hosted the Guinness World Record largest guided meditation with Deepak Chopra. And her seventh book just came out. It's called Super Attractor. And you're a relatively new mom. Gabby Bernstein, welcome to No Limits. I'm so glad we made this happen. It's good to be with you. We were just talking right before the interview began because the last Last time Gabby and I spoke, we both, um, well, I, I is I wasn't pregnant at all. Neither, neither, was neither I, were you. Yeah. Uh, so the last time that we spoke, wildly, uh, our lives were pretty dramatically different, I guess. Right about to change. Yeah, just about <laughs> to change. So um, I'm really thrilled to have you here with us. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Um, and I'd love to kind of go back to that initial part of your life where you hit rock bottom. Take us back to that moment in time. You were doing PR for a number of nightclubs here in New York. Yes, yes. I I had my own PR business at 21 and I represented nightclubs. So you can Did do, you the, think, do the math. Hey, I like to do I'd like to hang out at nightclubs, so that's why well, I want my you, PR business to be about that. When I was in college, I came back to New York City and a cousin, my cousin was big in the nightlife scene and he got me promoting parties. And I was like, oh my God, I can make money just inviting my friends to drink like this works. So that was what was the segue into doing PR for the clubs because I already had those relationships and I could sell anything. So, and I could definitely sell something if I was into it. And at the time, as we know, I was into it. So that's what I was doing from 21 to 25. You went to Syracuse. I went to Syracuse. Yes. And what did you study in college? I studied theater in college. Yes. Which I didn't think I would end. I didn't think I would use because when I left, I was not interested in being an actress. But really? now, yes, not yet. But decades later, I'm on stage often. There's yeah. There's um probably drawing in some ways. You're you're a speaker all around the world. Yeah. In some ways, drawing on the performative aspect. Yes, absolutely. The breath was stuff. I was like, why am I spending my entire 
college career breathing. <laughs> but now I really understand and the respecting my voice, my mm-hmm. presence, mm-hmm. Uh, being authentic was probably the greatest thing I learned from theater school. It sounds like you wanted to be entrepreneurial as well. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, frankly, I just didn't want to have a boss. <laughs> okay. I couldn't have a boss. I never had, had a you, boss. Did you, so you never worked for anyone? I had an internship at a PR company. And which did you hate me. your boss? No, it was a bizarre scenario over there. There was a young company, lots of, lots of stuff, lots of drugs, lots of, oh. you know, lots of, lots of New York City fast paced stuff happening there. And, and that's what, was the segue into running my own PR business, but which is also what ultimately kind of brought me to my bottom and was the catalyst for everything that my life has become today. So that bottom was really, Rumi has this beautiful quote, the wound is the place where the light enters you. That was my moment. That wound was the place. And there have been others, but I'm letting the light keep coming in. <laughs> Absolutely. So you you hit rock bottom. How do you know that you hit rock bottom? Well, on that day, it was October 2nd, 2005. So it was 14 years ago, almost 15 years ago. And I, almost 14 years ago, I I was on the floor in my studio apartment, hadn't slept the night before because I was up doing drugs and partying with people I didn't even know. And I heard people out the window walking to work and the garbage is, the garbage cans clanking and I just I, I had that moment where I silently said to myself, there has to be a better way. I didn't know who I was talking to. I didn't have a I had a stack of self-help books next to my bed that I mm. would constantly turn to, but I wasn't living those practices. So I said a prayer to a higher power that I didn't know of at the time. And I just said, I need a miracle. And that moment was really pinnacle because I I heard my inner voice. My Sometimes when you hear an intuition heard an inner voice say, get clean and you will live a life beyond your wildest dreams. That was a major turning point. And that was the day I got sober. That day? Yeah. Did you turn to anyone for help beyond those books at this point? I, when I got sober, I entered a, a recovery group, which is a, a is the one that we were not really supposed to talk about it in the media, but I entered a recovery group and that saved my life. Wow. Yeah. And what led then to the books and the speaking and the meditation? Right away, Rebecca, I went right into it because I was, this thing happens sometimes when people get sober, they they kind of shout from the rooftops, like they are just so happy to be free. That happens sometimes. Sometimes people are just, you know, re- reluctant to get clean. But I was really psyched to get sober. I was excited to have my life back. I was excited to feel physically better. I was excited to find spiritual faith that I could rely on. So the moment that I made that choice, a lot of wild synchronicity started to show up for me. I started to feel really, really connected in a way that I'd never felt before. I would rollerblade all over New York City going to meditation. This is way before spirituality was cool, right? Right. So I was like, you know, finding my way to like, totally. This was in 2005. I'm rollerblading to like raw food parties and like, (laughs) and like meditations and yoga. And like, this was not a thing. So I felt like, I have to talk about this because my generation needs this. And so I started putting on my own talks and people showed. I mean, my first talk was 40 people. Like I was telling the women at the nail salon and I, mean, I still to this day do that. Like I, yesterday, some girl was like, 
I, I, you know, kind of a photo. And I was like, come to my event Saturday. You know, like I just tell people I pull them off the street. But it, it was, you know, it was it was a special time. Were you thinking of it as a business at that time? Not necessarily like from the perspective of like financial gain or anything, but I wanted that to be my career. And so I saw the my predecessors, uh, Marianne Williamson, who is obviously very big in the media now. Uh, Marianne actually was the turning point for me because I had a, a sponsor in my recovery program that gave me her book, Return to Love. And I read that book and it blew my mind. It's the most beautiful book. Then became a student of A Course in Miracles, which she teaches as well, and and followed her work devotedly and have since, you know, become quite good friends and have a nice relationship. But that was, it was Marianne. It was Dr. Wayne Dyer. It was Louise Hay. And that was the trajectory I envisioned, Deepak Chopra, seeing myself on stages, seeing myself authoring books, seeing myself being a messenger not just for the new generation, but at the time I was 25. So I was like, okay, I can talk about this in a really authentic way. Let me let me bring it to this new generation of seekers. And did you almost reverse engineer then from, from these various other individuals whom you looked up to, how they were in the position that they were in? How would you go about doing that? There was no way that I was going to do it the same way they did because I was living in a time when then Facebook was popping up and Twitter was popping up and there was many more resources at the time. Wayne was, you know, Wayne in his early days was going to 70 cities in 70 days. Right. I don't have to do that. I never had to do that. Thankfully, I was a different generation. I could I could go to 10 cities on a book tour and do a live stream as a addition. Right. So there there was always going to be a different approach. So I, in terms of getting my message out and 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 creating a movement around what I was doing was different, but in some ways the same. Because when I first started out and I started giving talks, I saw how Marianne would go out and she would go into a church and she'd say, okay, it's $25 or $40 or whatever, suggested donation. And so I just started doing that. My first talks were at the Gay Lesbian Transgender Center on 13th Street, which was across the street from my apartment. (laughs) So I'd get ready and I'd walk across the street (laughs) and I'd set up all the chairs and I'd have a crappy mic. But it would fill up and fill up and fill up, and it became a thing. The social media aspect is a really interesting one to me because you talked about in the, the sort of early stages of your career that social media was something that was very useful in terms of getting the and word out and, and spreading a message, and it still is. But then there's also that downside, um, not just you know the ability to spread hate and allow it to be much bigger than you know being hateful in your basement or whatever it is, but there's also loneliness. I saw a statistic the other day about loneliness being at an all-time high. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of an interesting idea that we're more connected as a society in terms of technology than ever before, but we feel more alone than ever before it's as well. It's funny that you say that. That was actually ties back to Marianne Williamson because I remember there was one point where I was talking to her and I was like, about what we were just saying, like, oh, it's so cool. I can do things on live stream. I don't have to travel all over the place. And she she looked at me and she said, you have to be live. You have to be with the people because with the people, I don't mean to say it like that, but like with people, because you need to continue to create space and hold that space. Not just me, but all of us. Right. So so there is something to your point, lots of loneliness and disconnect. And my commitment is to be is to create community in person for the rest of my career so that we can offset some of that loneliness. 
For those out there who are feeling alone, whether it's their job or their family or the noise that's happening around them, do you think that there can be sort of a one-size-fits-all solution, or is it dependent on each individual out there? I believe that that when people become willing and ready to change, they are guided to the teacher that they will resonate with most. So it may be a yoga teacher. It may be a, it may be a motivational speaker. It may be uh, Deepak Chopra. It may be Gabby Bernstein. It's not that there's a one size fits all. It's that the moment that you wake up, that you have that moment like I had on the floor, like there has to be a better way moment. Then all of a sudden you'll start, maybe maybe an email comes into your inbox about a, a lecture that or a book or or something along those lines. And these days there's a plenty of, of beautiful teachers out there. So just as long as you're receptive, you'll be guided. And how much of that do you think is a movement away from organized religion, for example, and more towards the Gabby Bernsteins of the world. You know, everything I teach is non-denominational, as well as most spiritual teachers. So come come with religion. Don't come with religion. I don't care. Keep your religion. Like your religion, religion, whatever brings you faith and whatever brings you peace is what you must focus on. And if you're a religious person and you come to my work, great. I hope it just enhances your faith in your religion. I see the bright, bright side of religion as being a sacred space for people to connect with a God of their own understanding. So however you get there, I don't care. You've been doing this now for over a decade, like you said. What's been the biggest challenge along the way for you? My challenges came from this devoted commitment that I have made to my readers and my audience members to walk my talk. So when life hits me in the, in the, you know, I had that bottom at 25, but I've had many other big moments in my life in the last, particularly in the last five years of remembering childhood trauma. I had, you know, some, some physical issues as a result of that trauma, control, fear, just terror. And then most recently, postpartum anxiety and depression, like these moments of more bottom have, I think the difficult part of them but also the best part of being a teacher is that I, ha- I had no choice but to survive. I had no choice but to show up. I had no choice for myself because I don't sit in things, but more importantly, because I had to live to tell the story so I could serve others. And so while it was heart-wrenching and difficult to go through these, these traumatic moments, and I'm very, very excited to just be free of a lot of it, and a lot of it is just being cleared and being cleared— I don't regret it because it has given me such a sense of humility and such a sense of of understanding that I never had before. For instance, like mental health. Like I I would I probably was contributing to the stigma for many years because people would be in my audiences and say I have depression and my response would always be here's a meditation, here's a med-. and in, in many ways that's offensive because someone has many 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 people need far more than meditation and they need the meditation of course, but they need more. They need that psychiatrist, they need that they they need medical help and I could never speak to that before because I hadn't had a full-blown mental health condition until now. With the postpartum. postpartum. It's a biochemical issue, and I, yeah, I had it. How did you realize that? Well, I I realized it within two months, two and a half, three months, because I had insomnia and panic attacks. 
So my son was sleeping through the night at four months and I wasn't. So, and my therapist actually had to intervene and call my husband and say, her tools are no longer working for her. We have to get more care. Wow. Yeah. How did you, I mean, some people will probably hear that and think, wow, your therapist called your husband? I was there too. I was on the phone as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How did you feel hearing that initially? Hear more from Gabby Bernstein after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. How did you feel hearing that initially? Well, I trust her. I, I, I think that the therapists in this world are some of the most, they're human angels. And my therapist is, she, I feel like she's family to me. Mm-hmm. And she has held my hand through some of the most difficult experiences. And I can look back and say, we did really good work together. We continue to do good work. We, not just me, right? But with her guidance. So I was I was going to listen to whatever she said because I was in a crisis. Given that you've gone through this very recently, the postpartum depression, what is your advice to women who've had babies? As you know, I recently had my daughter, Isabel, as well. Um, what is your advice, regardless of whether you feel the anxiety or don't feel the anxiety post-baby? Well, as it relates to postpartum anxiety and depression, I think you should really educate yourself on what the symptoms are. Because a lot of what happens, and this happened to me, is that women, I literally said this out loud, I'm a, I'm, I'm a new mom. Of course I'm worried, right? Right. And and of course- It's a, hard to distinguish. It's hard to distinguish. I, I struggled to sleep after right. Isabel, I, right. you know, just worrying about what is, is she, she doing right breathe? now? Is, is she, she okay? Yes. Yeah. And that's very, very common. And it's, you know, it's in our- DNA to be nurturers and protectors. But there comes a point when it's unmanageable and you become powerless over it, much like when you accept that you have an addiction or something. Mm -hmm. So you have to recognize unmanageabilities. I haven't slept in two months and my child is sleeping. Uh, Unmanageability is I'm cleaning, 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 OCD cleaning. I can't stop cleaning. I've never been like this before. How, why am I sanitizing everything? You know, that's another mm-hmm. way this can come out. Uh, a panic attack is unmanageability. I, I, a pan- For someone who has never had generalized anxiety or severe anxiety before to start having panic attacks is a, is a sign, is a clear, clear sign. Now, does that mean that everyone needs to be medicated? No. But does that mean that you have to talk about it very seriously with a therapist, psychiatrist, or even your OBGYN? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know a lot of people out there politically are knocking the fact that OBGYNs can prescribe meds and that they can be a counselor for someone with P- PPA and PPD. Thank God they can. I'm screaming in your <laughs> No, but thank I... Thank God they can, because a lot of women can't afford psychiatrists. Yeah. I love my OBGYN. Yes. And I'm thankful, and this is not to stigmatize it at all, but I don't believe that I dealt with um, postpartum 
But you would know. But I do know that it was my OBGYN whom I was seeing yep. after she was born, after my daughter was born, that was asking, how are you feeling? And interestingly, and I don't know if this is um, something that all pediatricians do. I was do, just going to say that with pediatricians but every appointment when I yeah, would check in, yep. they would ask me. And I yep. I think that's really great that, that, that they're doing too. that. I thought that was excellent. And the irony is I'd be in there. I'd be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm not fine. You know? Yeah. Um, but... But uh, that was something that was very moving to me to mm-hmm. see that this wasn't just about the baby, that they were thinking about the mom. Yes. But as a result of thinking about the mom, they're thinking about the baby because babies can be unsafe when the mom is in that state. Yeah. And there's too many suicides from mothers postpartum. It's a, listen, this is a topic I'm going to talk about for the rest of my life because I, I, my life was, was in danger. Yeah. Were you writing the book now, Super Attractor. Were you writing that while pregnant? Yes. Okay, so how much did that uh, shape the message? My son is a real through line throughout my book, and I dedicated the book to him because he has been my greatest manifestation. This book is Methods for Manifesting, A Life Beyond Your Wildest Dreams. That's the subtitle. My son's stories show up throughout the book about all the synchronicity that just continued to remind me that I was guided even when I wasn't getting pregnant. It took me three years to conceive. And I spoke about that a lot. Wow, we have a lot in common. Beautiful. And I just just continued to... So it's interesting. It's like when it takes you a long time, it's it's a precious pregnancy and it's a precious delivery and they kind of treat you like like a golden baby, you know? It's good. It's, It's a special thing. They all are golden babies, though. I know. I I agree with that point as well. I see my friends who some of them didn't have to go through everything, and and they, the the love that you have is, it's not it, you it, you can't describe it. It's on another level. It's on another level. What do you say to um, the people who look at your work and think, oh, it sounds a little woo woo to me? Like would it would it have sounded as it's when you were younger, like when you were a kid? If you had seen one of the books that you've now written, one of your bestsellers, what would you have thought of it? Well, I grew up visiting ashrams and meditating. My mom was uh, a devotee of a woman called Guru Mai. And so this wasn't unfamiliar to me. I had, I in, in high school, I was reading Wayne Dyer. I was, I was a seeker even when I was quite young. So... I, I, I was a bad example. I would, I would have been like, yes, thank God there's a young woman that I can look up to that's writing this way. That's the way I would have seen it. A young woman, which is the interest. I think that's kind of one of the interesting aspects of it. Because when you were younger, there weren't a lot of necessarily female and or young females to look up to in the space. There were females, but not young people. And I want to say this with some humility, but I believe I was really at the forefront of bringing spiritual principles to a new generation. There's been beautiful teachers that in my, of my generation, but I, I, I would identify as someone that really said, here it is. I'm bringing it out. Did you come up against anyone who, when you were starting out, who said, you know, experience, just just hold out a little bit longer. You need more life experience in um, order to, to take this role? No. I think that the resistance that we receive in life is a reflection of our own inner resistance. And I had zero resistance around what I was here. It was almost like this this Joan of Arc quote, 
I am not afraid I was born to do this. That was like my mantra. I was like, full speed ahead. Give me a microphone. Let's go. Was cursing on the stage, wearing weird outfits, like could care less. (laughs) And when you don't question yourself, no one questions you. Hmm. That's a good point. Or if they do see You don't care. You don't care. Or you That's don't the thing. hear it. You don't hear it. Like I it think- literally isn't a match for you. And this is actually what Super Attractor is about. It's like if you what you believe you receive. So if you're not putting out that energy or that fear, or that insecurity, it may be happening around you. Yes. I'm sure it was. But you don't care. And it happens far less. You know, there's a story I wrote about in one of my books. I can't remember which one it was. I wrote about how I my first book I tried to sell during 2008 recession. And my stepfather was like, you know, Gabby, it's a recession. It's going to be hard to sell a book right now. And I looked at him and I was like, Mike, hell no. I was like, this, thank you so much. But I was like, this was the metaphor I used. It was sort of funny. I was like, think of me as a levitarian. I was like, the same way I'd be a vegetarian, I'd be like, don't put your meat on my plate. I'm a levitarian. Don't put your fear on my plate. And I was like, back off, man. And I sold the book two months later. Uh, by the way, I love that you just brought up the Great Recession here. The Great Recession. Yeah. Well done. Yes. Exactly. Um, so when people think about happiness, and by the way, you talked about resistance. That is a huge theme yes. throughout your work. When people think about happiness and they come to you and say, Gabby, I'm not happy. How do I become happy? Yeah. What do you say? Well, if they're coming to me, I would congratulate them. If they've come to me to say that, because I, I would say, well, if you're here or you're reading my book or you're in my audience or you're following me on Instagram, then you're willing to be happy. Then you're willing to change. So I would remind them that they've actually followed the first step, which is the willingness to change and to continue to allow that willingness to be a daily devotion every single day, committing to that willingness to change. Because as we become more and more open and receptive and willing to see things differently, then that's when we can be aware of the guidance that is around us. It's when we are resistant to that change. We don't want to get sober. We don't want to leave the relationship. We don't, And we deny ourselves the possibility that we can actually receive that guidance. How do you get to the point, though? It's not always crystal clear, the things yes. that are standing in your yes. way. Yes. And the irony is that the alcoholism or uh, something where it's really severe and your life is at stake and are sometimes the easier times to change, right? right? Because the doctor it's so says loud it's so overt. Or because you're in jail or because yeah. you, you had a DUI or, you know, just you've hit a bottom. So it's like, it, I don't want people, my my intention is to help people raise their bottoms so they don't have to keep getting so, so such a low point to change, but they can change at a higher point in their life. Just bounce a little bit. A little sooner. Sooner. So they don't have to fall apart completely. The, the miracle membership, that's yes. the subscription service. Yes. So how much of that is, well, first of all, explain what it is and explain how it plays into I'm all so of this. I'm so happy you brought this up. I never talk about this in the media and I really should because it's the greatest offering I have. It's it's affordable. It's 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 transformational content. It's a subscription service. It's a subscription. It's a $19 a month membership. And my members get every month a Got a brand new guided meditation, kundalini meditations, mantra meditations, healing meditations, beautiful meditations. They get a audio podcast of me just riffing on a spiritual topic. I'm going to start doing some cool things where I'm going to take their questions and respond to them. They get an archive talk because I have 14 years of video footage. So I, I clip up archive talks for 40 minutes. And they get mantra art. They get quarterly trainings with me. 
they get a community. Uh, they get discounts on my live events and courses. Not live events, courses. And they get consistency. So why I created the Miracle Membership was to make it easy, affordable, and help people stay consistent on their spiritual path. Because what happens is, is people will read a book, they'll feel great for a month, and then they fall off. So there's a what's next conversation. And my hope after my book tour is that a lot of people will recognize that they need that support as they continue on. And I'm going to just completely devote my future to making that membership just epic for people. And the coolest part is when they enter, they get all the archives. It's I'm so generous with this thing. They get four years of archived content. So you're just, you can just dip in anytime. What do you think about the argument, this should all just be free? Well, my response to that is that I have, uh, most of what I do is free. So uh, I have... I have a weekly blog every week that's free, beautiful content. I have free meditations I give away all over my website. I have, so if you need free, I got free. You're good. I got you covered. You could be well, well connected for a long time with my free content. Your life, I mean, the amount that you are putting out, your life has to be constantly, you're always thinking about this stuff. You're always writing. You're always talking. Yeah. It's a blessing and a curse to have lots of ideas. My team has to wrangle me and shut me down, and they all have full permission to say, no, not now. Yes, but not now, right? Or no, not now. Because otherwise, I'm going to take myself in too many different directions and burn out. I won't let myself burn out anymore. I did that. I'm done with that. I have a zero stress tolerance in my life, and I'm super committed to that. So I won't let myself burn out, but I will take my team in the wrong direction. Like I'll kind of be like, do this, do that, do this. So it, it's it's really effective to focus. And even my version of focusing looks like a lot to the average person. I think that focus is something that would be very valuable for a lot of people. Is it is it choosing the right team members who help you focus or how did you come to that place of focus? Well, it's both. It's choosing It's choosing a team that you you can rely on that are going to have the bravery to speak back to you and say no. And also my husband runs my business, so he's the first to say, hell no, we're not doing that. Uh, Good to have someone you trust so much in that role. Uh, it's priceless. And my husband is ex- is a, a genius, really. He, he, um, he worked in finance for a decade and then was a, he's an attorney. He retired from that job to run this business and it's his devotion and his commitment and it has made such a create such a safe space for me to do the work I need to do I'm sure yeah having somebody you can trust in that particular it's, role it's unreal is invaluable invaluable I don't know what the question was though oh how do you how do you stop yourself or how do you manage? how do you yeah how do you make that focus because I think what happens to a lot of people um and I'm I know it happens to a lot of our listeners because they write me about it They have all of these aspirations and they want to go in a million different directions. And it's really hard to know where to focus that energy in that time. So my advice would be focus on what lights you up most right now. Don't throw away the other ideas. Shelf them. Keep developing them on the side, maybe, or if you're meditating and you want to keep a notebook next to you. But you got to shelf them because if you try to do it all at once... You won't do anything well. Yeah, definitely. So what is uh, the worst advice you've received along the way, Gabby? Oh, God. There's been a lot. Um, Let's see. 
The worst advice. I always get what's the best advice. This is a good question. Yeah. The worst advice was, oh, I know, I know. There was somebody early in my career that did do that thing that you were saying, oh, you're too young, not now. And it was a book publisher that, oh, sorry, it was a book agent that said, oh, no, don't sell your new book so quickly. You know, that's, you're, you're not there yet. I sold that book a month later with a different agent. And that was really what got my career kicking. And New York Times bestseller. Yes. Right off the bat. Yes. Well done, Gabby. Yes. Did you think, because I always wonder this when you get that kind of feedback, was there anything inside of you that thought it might be accurate? When it has come to my career, listen, I'm not going to pretend like I've got it all together everywhere, but when it has come to my career, I've had no fear, no resistance. I've been very clear this is what I'm here to do. I believe that I chose this path to, to make a difference. So in that area. And then there's other areas where I had a lot of still like um, unfelt trauma, rage, things I had that, you know, maybe I would, uh, that I've had like a lot of physical things I've had to deal with because that I'm healing now because I didn't fully develop my own inner life because of traumatic events from my childhood, right? So that stuff had to be unraveled and worked on and healed and continued to be healed in order to really be free. What was, would you say, the most pivotal thing that happened to you in your childhood? Uh, interestingly, I can say probably the trauma because it made me who I am today. Yeah, I'm proud to be able to say that now. I'm so thankful for you being able to say that to us yeah. here. Gabby Bernstein, congratulations on everything you've done. The book is called Super Attractor, and um, you can find Gabby on social media as well which is a way that you can hear more of her teachings. Yes. Thank you so much, Gabby. Thank you. Okay, it is the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, it is Christine Deer. She's the founder and CEO of the activewear brand, Kay Deer. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Christine Deer, founder and CEO of K Deer, an activewear brand based here in New Jersey. When I think about my challenges in business, um, a lot of the time they aren't that big a deal, right? The challenges that we face from operational things to hiring to uh, production to sales, all those things, those are all things that we can figure out. Those are, those are things that we can find solutions to. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that I personally go through in business is sometimes just my self-doubt. Um, three years ago, we had a situation where um, a very well-known, popular activewear brand copied three of our best-selling charity-supporting designs. And it was heartbreaking. It was like a punch to the gut that made me feel as though I, I was going to lose my business, like it was going to be all over. And the reality was um, the absolute opposite happened. Our followers, our customers rallied with us or for us and put so much pressure on this brand for committing such a fashion crime that they took everything off the shelf. 
Um, I luckily didn't have to go any further than that and gave my fans a big thank you, giving away 10,000 free t-shirts. And it was one of those amazing experiences that had to that I, that I had to go through in order to understand my value and the impact that I had on our community and, and this activewear category. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate that I can have these challenges. Um, I've been in business now for nine years and the big lesson here is that you know, when, when we doubt our greatness, we take away opportunities from ourselves and we take away impact that we can make on those who need it most. So I'm all in for a good challenge. And if my greatest challenge is with myself, then game on. Bravo, Christine. Wishing you continued success. It's great to feature you here. And listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis if you'd like to hear more from Christine about how she built her company. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send us those nominations to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to ABC Radio. See you all next week.